Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 20 to 35. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 20, and we're going to resume our study in the Gospel of Mark. It's page 109, 109, if you're using the Pew Bible today. Mark chapter 3, we're going to begin at verse number 20. This, by the way, is known as a uh, one of six of Mark's sandwich stories. Uh, they are called that because he begins with one group, then moves to a second and third group, as we'll see, and then goes back to the original group. So you have, uh, he begins with the disciples, he ends with the disciples, but in the middle, we're going to meet some other individuals we're going to talk about as well. So let's pick it up, Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse number 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so much so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went out to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. And so Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, a kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact... No one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. And then he can rob his house. And I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. And then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Well, the crowd was sitting around him. And they told him, your mother and brothers, and they're all outside looking for you. Well, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated around in a circle around him. And he said, here is my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will, they are my brother and my sister and my mother. Let's pray. Father, as we get into this passage, I pray that our hearts will be receptive to the amazing things we can learn today about Jesus and who he is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is, what is family to you? What is family to you? I would hope that you would say family is important. Family is where I... Uh, I receive unconditional love. Family is where I receive acceptance. It's where I receive my support. And I, I, I would hope that we would all say that family is a blessing to me. But you know, as Christians, we are double blessed because we have two families. We also, we not only have a, our original family, our biological family, but we also have our Christian family. But you know what? Not everybody is a part of the Christian family. Not everybody is a child of God. 
And that raises, I think, a very interesting question. And Jesus is going to answer this for us today. What is the defining feature of someone who is a member of the family of God? What is that primary characteristic that would say to someone, they are a child of God? Now this morning, uh, we're going to meet Jesus' family. And uh, by the way, you know, he is the virgin-born son of God. I think, make sure we're all clear on that. He's the virgin-born son of God. But after Jesus is born, Joseph and Mary go on to have children of their own. In fact, we know that there are, Jesus has at least four, call them half-brothers, four. There's uh, James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon. And he had, we think, maybe even a couple sisters. We don't know their names. And so Jesus had a family that he grew up with. And let me just say here, if you grew up in a family where you had little or no support, no acceptance, you had a, maybe a difficult childhood, maybe, you know what? You've got a friend in Jesus. You're going to find out here in just a minute. This morning, we're, we're actually going to look at two groups. There are two major groups of people here. There's uh, those who are on the outside. We're going to look at them first. They're the outsiders. And these are the people who, they're familiar with Jesus, very familiar with him, but they're on the outside. And then we're going to look at people who are on the inside. They are the family of Jesus. And that's what we want to look at as well. So let's take a look. First of all, let's look at these outsiders. Those who are familiar with Christ, but they're still on the outside. In today's passage, Jesus is seated with his disciples. They're inside a house. And outside this house, there is a crowd that is forming. And it's getting larger and larger. And within this crowd, there's a couple groups of people. And they're all trying to figure out who is Jesus of Nazareth. They're all trying to make sense. So they, they can see the miracles that he's working. The miracles, they're real. They're, they're powerful. Um, they're authentic. They're clearly um, uh, supernatural in character. They're trying to understand how he's doing that. And at the same time, they're trying to make sense of... Um, the claims that he's making about himself. One of the, one of the things I've noticed about uh, Jesus in, in this study we've been going through here in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus, he sure liked to talk about himself a lot. He was always talking about him. So constantly talking about himself and not only talking about himself, he was making some extraordinary claims. Let me give you an example. Jesus claimed that he is the son of man. Now, when you and I hear something like that, we think that's pretty generic, very unassuming. We don't think much about that. But let me tell you something. In the Jewish, in the Jewish religious circles, the son of man is bigger than life. And in Jewish culture, that title, Son of Man, that is huge. It, it, comes, it comes from the book of Daniel. Let me read what Daniel says about the Son of Man. Listen to this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was the Son of Man. And he was coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? God, the Father. So here he is, the Son of Man, approaching the Father. You can, you know, if you look closely, you see the Trinity in the Old Testament. But here is the Son of Man, Jesus. He's approaching the Father. And notice, it says, he, talking about the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All people, nations, people of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That, that's the Son of Man. And Jesus comes on the scene here among the Jewish people and he says, Ta-da! I am the Son of Man. Jesus made other jaw-dropping claims too. He said that, he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. What he meant by that is, I am the author of the Sabbath day. That's incredible. What he is saying is, after six days of creating the heavens and the earth, I finally on the seventh day decreed that the seventh day would be a day of rest. And people are trying to make sense of all this. The miracles that he's working are powerful. The the claims that he is making are are, uh, astounding. And Mark now tells us that there are two groups of people who come up with their theory of who Jesus of Nazareth is. And we're going to look, and this is the first group right here. His biological family. His original family. Take a look at verse number 20. It says, then Jesus, verse 20, then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered, so much so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. I don't know what's going on. Maybe they sent out for pizza. And, and the delivery guy couldn't even get in. They can't even eat. Anyway, here's the verse, 21. When his family heard about this, they've been hearing things. Someone has come to, to Nazareth, where they live. They've come to Nazareth, and they've said to Jesus' family, Hey, did you know Jesus, your brother? He's, he's up in Capernaum, and he's making all kinds of wild statements, like he's the Son of Man, he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he's claiming he can forgive sins, and he's doing all these things, and... And it gets the family all riled up. So notice, they hear about this. And so it says, they went. So they leave Nazareth. They went to, and my version says, take charge of him. Now that's a pretty tame translation, if you want to know the truth. That is the same word used when when the Roman soldiers come and they arrest Jesus. The word literally has the idea of, they are going, and Jesus has four brothers. They are going to get Jesus and literally they're going, they're going to physically restrain him. So they're going there. It says they went to take charge or they're going there to physically restrain him. For they said, he is what? Out of his mind. Does that not, is that not one of the most shocking statements in the Bible? His own family are saying, he's out of his mind. Not a very flattering picture, is it, of his family. And then notice verse number 31. Get this, verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers, they arrive. So they're in Capernaum probably, where they're at now. And it says, standing where? Where were they standing? Outside. 
Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are where? Outside, looking for you. Twice, Mark says, they're outside. Yeah, they're outside in more ways than one, aren't they? They're outside in more ways than one because they have a view of Jesus that's not orthodox. It's not correct. They're on the outside because they think he's out of his mind. You know, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, and he, he, he writes in the book that it really comes down to three things. Jesus is either liar, a liar, He's either a lunatic or he's Lord. And in theological circles, we call this the trilemma. He's one of these three. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's a Lord. He's, he's one of these three. So let's take a minute and let's think about this. Is Jesus a liar and a, and a, and a lunatic? Is he out of his mind? Let me tell you, that is the farthest possibility that you could ever come up with. Let me give you a couple reasons why this is not even feasible. First of all, there have been a lot of people over the years who have claimed that they've come from heaven or they're God, you know, in some fashion or form. You know, you know what I'm talking about. People like David Koresh or Jim Jones and some of those kind of people. They, none of them have ever been able to put together any kind of a real movement. Oh, they had their small little group of a few handful of people because most people looked at them and realized, hey, you know what? As they say in the construction business, he's a bubble off plum. You know, the elevator doesn't go all the way to the, uh, to the uh, top floor kind of a guy. People recognize that these people, now they were able to, they did manage to gather around them a few people who were uh, gullible, needy you know there are needy people out there who will follow them that kind of a person but most people recognize those individuals don't have it let me tell you something Jesus he made claims far more radical than they ever did he made claims far more extreme than they ever did and yet he managed to put together a movement that has lasted 2,000 years. It literally has encompassed millions and millions and millions of people that literally are around the world. And do you know why? Because we understand and we recognize Jesus is very much a sane person. He is the most sane person who ever walked this earth. And let me tell you how we know that. Look at how he used his powers. Look at how he used his amazing power. He never used them for himself. He always used them for others. He fed the hungry with his power. He healed the sick with his power. He freed people from their demons with his power. He reached out and he touched people who had not been touched in years and let them know, God loves you. He reached out and touched them and let them know God values you. God has a purpose for you. He used his power to reach out and touch them and cleanse them. That's how he used his power. Let me tell you something. Jesus, his life was that of a very sane 
compassionate and caring individual. Everywhere he went, he lifted people up and made them better than when he met they met him. He is by far the most the only really sane person who ever walked this earth. Now, not everybody let me put it, there are a lot of people who do not like the, the trilemma thing. You know, where you either Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's a Lord. They don't like that because history proves when you look at the Lord's life, he's not a liar or a lunatic, obviously. That's, that's clear. And that leaves only one option, doesn't it? I mean, that really paints them in a corner. It puts them in an unenviable position where you almost, you have to choose he's Lord because history bears out he's not a liar or a lunatic. So you know what they've done today? And this is a movement that started maybe, actually maybe about 80 or 90 years ago. But in in the last 20 or 30 years, it has really picked up steam. And here's what it is. There are those who now say, no, there is a fourth option. Jesus was a good man. That's what they're saying. He was a good, he was a great teacher. He was a charismatic leader. In fact, he was so gifted that he just inspired people to be good and kind and loving. You know why they come up with that? Because they don't want to concede the fact that Jesus Christ is Savior, that he is Lord, and we can build our lives around him. They don't want to concede that. But I will tell you this, to embrace that view, that Jesus was just a good man. To embrace that view means, you know what? You have to discount the Bible. Those who hold to that view will say, you know what? The Bible is a book of, of uh, fairy tales. I keep wanting to say traditions, but it's not really traditions, but legends. It's just a book of legends and fairy tales. Jesus never, he never worked any miracles. He, he, never, uh, he never went around claiming to be God. And he certainly didn't rise from the grave. He was just a good man. Now, let me tell you something. That is ridiculous. And let me tell you why. That, uh, put it this way, that dog don't hunt, okay? There are some good reasons. Let me give you some good reasons why that's absolutely ridiculous. The, the Gospels, the Gospels written about Jesus Christ, they were all written within 20 or so years of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. Think about it, 20 years. How many of you were alive 20 years ago? All right? That's just about everybody, I think. Almost all of us here. All right. Think back 20 years ago. When the Gospels were written, think of all the people who were living in Galilee when Jesus was in Galilee working all these miracles. They saw those miracles. And now the Gospels are written, they're being circulated around, and people are reading about that. And those who are living in Galilee, you know what they're saying? That's true. I was there. I saw it happen. I saw that miracle. And there are people living in Jerusalem. They were there when Jesus was crucified. They said, I saw the crucifixion. I saw his resurrection. What the Bible authors have written is right on target. It's 100% accurate. 
Listen to what Paul writes. Here's what Paul writes in Corinthians, which was written about 20, 25 years after Christ. Paul writes, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried. And he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers. All at the same time. And, here's what he says, most of them are still alive. Do you hear what Paul's saying? You don't believe in the resurrection? I could tell you there's about 450 people who are alive today who saw it. If you're going to, my point is, if you're going to fabricate stories about Jesus, you don't do it when there are thousands of witnesses who could corroborate that this book is accurate and true. You wait until long, long after all the eyewitnesses are gone and dead. Then you fabricate stories. This book was written within 20, 25 years, most of the Gospels and many of the letters, within the lifetime of those who saw Jesus Christ. Jesus was the most sane man to walk this earth. He was kind. He was compassionate. He was caring. He had all the traits of a sane person. You know, sometimes... An individual will do something terrible. A ter- they'll commit a terrible crime. They'll take the lives of maybe dozens of people. And then when they're on trial, you know what they plead? Insanity. Because a sane person doesn't do that. Jesus was as sane, the most sane person to walk this earth. <clears throat> All right. So Jesus' family, they're on the outside. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, let's look at the next group. There's another group that also have a theory about Jesus, and that's the religious leaders. All right, let's take a look at that. And by the way, you would think that these are people who would have an inside track. They're religious leaders, kind of like the family. You would think they would have an inside track. Notice verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came from Jerusalem, they came from headquarters. And they said, he is possessed. He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. That's, that's how he's driving out demons. He is, he is in cahoots with the devil. Now that's a pretty serious accusation, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you can get stoned for something like that in biblical times. And this now leads to one of the most dramatic exchanges between Jesus and someone else in the Bible. Notice verse 23. So Jesus called them. Oh, he spoke to them. (laughs) He let them. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? Come on. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand. His end has come. I mean, the very idea that Jesus is in cahoots with the devil is nonsense. That's, that's like a general taking his army, dividing it in two, two, group, two armies, and then having them fight themselves. No one does it. No one is that. Satan is not, is not Satan is stupid, but he's not, <clears throat> he's not that stupid. 
He doesn't do that. So what Jesus does now, he's going to reveal to us who he is. Notice verse 27. Verse 27. He says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. <clears throat> Jesus likens this world, <clears throat> excuse me, boy, to a castle, all right? <clears throat> a castle that is dominated by an evil prince. And in this castle are prisoners who are being held captive. Jesus is, he likens this, this world to a kingdom. And uh, this kingdom is dominated by a warlord. And this warlord has prisoners who are captive to him. Now, let's, get, let's make sure we're all clear on who's who here. The strong man is Satan. He is the evil prince. He is the evil warlord. The prisoners being held captive, the, the ones that Jesus is coming to rob or take from him, that's us. We're the prisoners. And Christ says, I am the one who's going to storm the kingdom, storm the castle, and I am going to free those who are held captive. You know what Jesus is declaring? He's saying, I am more mightier and more powerful than the evil prince, the strong man of this world. What Jesus is saying is, I'm here. And what you are seeing, I am binding the strong man. I'm binding his army because I am here to free the captives. I'm here to free people and set them go, let them go. I'm here to free those who are in bondage to fear. Those who are in bondage to anxiety. Those who are in bondage to addiction. Those who are in bondage to guilt. Jesus says, I've come to bind up that evil prince and free you from that bondage. And by the way, I mean, you know, those, those who argue that, well, you know, Jesus was just a man. Really? Can a, can, a, can a good teacher bind the evil prince of this world? Can a, can a, can a, can a, a good teacher, can he, can he rid the world of poverty and, and hunger and disease? No. Only the Son of Man could do that. By the way, how's he going to do it? How is he going to free us? <laughs> In time, the religious leaders, they're going to bind Jesus, is what they're going to do. And then they're going to lead him up a hill called Calvary. And they're going to nail him to a cross. And you know what? It looked like Jesus was about to suffer the greatest defeat of his life, doesn't it? He dies on that cross. But I want you to know that cross was the it was Christ's finest hour. It was there that he defeated Satan. It was there that he gained that stunning victory over Satan. And he truly did bind Satan and set us free. Free from guilt. Free from sin. Free from bondage. Free from punishment. 
He set us free. There is freedom in Christ because there's forgiveness in Christ. Take a look at verse number 28. I tell you the truth. All sins. How many? All sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. You realize no matter what sins you've committed, there's, there's forgiveness in Christ. No matter how many sins you've committed, there's forgiveness in Christ. A number, number of years ago, a group of atheists got together and they decided to publish a pamphlet that would uh, mock Christianity. And the way they did it was they began to uh, go through the Bible and pick out some of these major Bible characters like, like Abraham. And said, you know, Abraham was a liar. He was a liar. And yet, God called him the friend of God. And then there's Jacob. You know, Jacob, he too, he deceived his father. Uh, he stole, uh, he was a thief. He stole the birthright of his brother. And, and yet, he's called the prince of God. And, and it talks about David. David, here was a man that God called a man after my own heart. And yet, David was an adulterer and a murderer. And, and, and it goes through all these people in the Bible, Samson and others. And then at the end of it, it says, what kind of God would have a liar, deceiver, murderer, adulterer, and those kind of... What kind of a God would have those kind of people as his friends? You know, I kind of think they actually made our point, really. What kind of God? A forgiving God. A gracious God. A compassionate God. A loving God. And, you know, and anybody who's listening to the Holy Spirit will sense within their heart, you know, this is true. It is true. Now, Jesus now issues a very stern warning in verse 28. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. He's talking now to the religious leaders. And they have accused him of being in cahoots with the devil. And what he is saying is if you continue to hold to that view... You cannot be forgiven. Now, I'll tell you, when I was growing up in church, I was always afraid that I had committed somewhere in my life the unpardonable sin. Have you ever felt that you, uh, have I committed the unpardonable sin? I was scared to death sometimes. But what I've come to realize is, remember this. The warning that's given here, this is for the religious leaders. For making Jesus to be out to be in cahoots with the devil. The promise... That's for us. And the promise is verse 28. All sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. That's our promise. All sins. Now, two theories then about Jesus. Both of them are wrong. And both of those groups are on the outside. Now, let's just take a minute and look at those on the inside. The insiders. These are the, these are the real family of Jesus. Let's look at that. Now let's pick it up in verse number 32. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers, they're outside looking for you. Who are my mothers and brothers? He asked. Then they looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, and said, here are my mother. Here's my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother mother sister and mother and that's something Jesus he, who's he talking about who's seated around him his disciples he says right here this is my family 
By the way, you know what happens when you come into the family of God? He wraps his strong, loving arms around you and he will not let you go. And you know, think about it. You may have grown up in a family where you weren't supported, you weren't encouraged, you weren't accepted. But you know something? The Heavenly Father, he will never let you down. He loves you with a love no one else can love you with. And I want you to notice the last verse. This is really, this is the answer to the question of what is the feature of a child of God? Whoever does God's will. What is God's will? Love one another. Pray for one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Be patient with one another. Comfort one another. I think there's about 50 of those. That's God's will. So here's what I want us to take home today. Those who do the will of God are the members of the family of God. And you know something? Anybody can be a child of God. Anyone. If you want to move from being an outsider to an insider, it's very simple. You put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then you know what happens? When you have a Heavenly Father... There's just something within you that says, I want to obey my loving, caring, heavenly Father. It just comes natural. Put your trust in Jesus. Become an insider. Become a part of his family. It'll change your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that reminds us that um, anybody can be a, a member of your family. And I pray, Father, if there's someone here today... They've never put their trust in Christ. They've never, they're, not, they're still on the outside. Father, I pray that you'll, you'll speak to their hearts. Draw them in. Bring them inside and into your family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together the greatest thing. Two stanzas. Great.
if you would like to uh, pray with someone, I'll be, I'll be up front and our elders are here. And uh, please feel free to come up. We'll pray with you and uh, talk about anything need you might have. Let's have a closing prayer together. Father, we are blessed that we are your children. And I, I pray, Father, that you will help us each day to love you and, and just live as a child of God. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. that drew salvation's plan Oh, the grace that brought it down to man Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at God.